Readings from Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. And apologies, there's lots of words that I might say wrong, but here we go. (laughs) When Paul and his companions had passed through Theophilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in the search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Beria. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berian Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God to Beria, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Beria. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Father, I pray you would speak to us by your Spirit. Speak to us of Jesus. Help us learn what it means to follow you as your people in this place today. And inspire us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, the church in Thessalonica had a fairly explosive start to its life. It's a miracle it survived, which perhaps helps explain why in First and Second Thessalonians you get a sense of the depth of Paul's love for those Christians. He warns them about persecution, but I suspect even he was surprised at how quickly it came. Because it did in these two letters, Paul lays bare his pastoral heart, a twin commitment to God's word and to God's people. They responded quickly to the gospel, but their faith wasn't shallow. It was, it was genuine and it was life-changing. The adversity they faced from the beginning, which we'll look at in a moment, produced in them such love for one another, that became known over the whole region, and Paul can't stop talking about it. I think the tone of these letters suggests to me that Paul wished he could have spent longer with them. As we look through the next few weeks, look out for how Paul urges them to keep doing more and more what they are already doing, to continue in what they've started. You see, for Paul, the Christian life means learning to walk in a way that pleases God, that is worthy of his call. It means growing 
in holiness. The Thessalonians had made a good start in difficult circumstances, but would they keep going? So let's back up and look in more detail at how it started. If you have a church Bible, it's uh, page 1113. If you don't, it's Acts chapter 17. It'd be great if you had it open as we look through it together this morning. And if you do have it open, you can see from those pages quite quickly that we are in the middle of something here. This isn't some isolated trip to, uh, to a place called Thessalonica. Paul was in the middle of one of his missionary journeys. And uh, I've got a map of it here on the screen. But on the far right-hand side, about halfway down, is a place called Antioch, which is where Paul began. And then he did this huge loop through Asia Minor into Europe and then back across down to Jerusalem and then ended back up in Antioch again. Most of the time in Asia Minor, he was visiting and strengthening the churches that he'd planted with Barnabas on his first missionary journey. This is his second. On this one, though, while he and his companions were in Troas, Paul had a vision. This is in Acts chapter 16. He had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So over they went, over that little bit of sea, into Macedonia, and they ended up in Philippi. And they planted the first church in Europe there, in the house of a lady called Lydia, who was a wealthy lady, the seller of purple cloth. They got into trouble. And they ended up being flogged and put in prison. But that night, the jailer in Philippi and his whole household became believers and were baptized. In the morning, the authorities asked Paul and Silas to leave, which is at the end of chapter 16. And that set the pattern for the rest of this missionary journey. They would arrive somewhere. They would start to preach the gospel and they would see some converts. They would plant a church. And then others would start to oppose them and end up forcing them to leave town. But all that did was give Paul and his companions an excuse to go and tell the gospel somewhere else. Planting more and more churches. And one of those places was Thessalonica. There's a thing called the Ignatian Way. It's a bit like the M69. It went right across Greece from east to west. And it was a Roman road. And uh, Paul used it to go from Philippi down to Amphipolis to Apollonia, all the way down there to Thessalonica. So that's where we are today. It was the capital city of that region. And so it had a synagogue a, and a community of Jews. Now we know from chapter 16 in Acts and from chapter 18 that when Paul arrived in a place, he would normally stay with a local family, often one of the earliest converts to Jesus. And in Thessalonica, they stayed with a man named Jason. We hear about him in uh, verses 5, 6, and 7 in our reading. Unlike Lydia in chapter 16, and unlike Priscilla and Aquila in chapter 18, Luke doesn't tell us anything about Jason. It's not very helpful. But what that tells me is it means that probably Luke, Luke knew that the people he was writing this book for would know who Jason was. Jason may even have been one of them. It's important to remember that the Bible's not only about real people. Many, much of it, particularly the New Testament, was written to real people as well, communities of faith. A few examples of that in particularly the letters, but also in Acts, where it's very clear that the person in the story 
was actually in the community that was being written to. And I suspect Jason here is one of those. Anyway, Paul and Silas are in Jason's house, probably with Timothy as well, because uh, Timothy pops up in verse 14. They lived among the people uh, in that community in Thessalonica, but simply being in that community wasn't enough. They also shared the gospel. Now, we don't know how long they were there. I think I'm with uh, John Stott on this, who thinks that they were there for several months. But what we do know is that on three different Sabbath days, this is verse 2, Paul went into the Sabbath and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He shared the gospel with them. God loves you, he said. Oh, except he didn't say that. (laughs) See, one of the important things in Acts is to notice how the apostles shared the gospel. And not once does any one of them mention love. In fact, the word love doesn't appear at all in the book of Acts. Not once. The closest we get um, is the word kononia, which means fellowship, which describes the fellowship of believers. Now, of course, we don't have everything that each of the apostles said when they shared the gospel. But each time Luke reports someone sharing the gospel, he mentions Jesus every single time, but not love, which I think is quite interesting. Now, of course, it is true that God loves us. The reason he sent Jesus was because he loves us. The Old Testament is really clear. The reason God chose Israel, not because they had anything to commend themselves, but because God loved them. But Acts suggests to me that people don't need to hear God loves them. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear that Jesus suffered and died and rose from the dead. Verse 3. That's what Paul explained and proved from the Scriptures. People need to hear that Jesus is the Savior. That in Jesus alone we can be forgiven and receive new life. Those are the things that the apostles say when they share the gospel in Acts. Now, I've made people cross before saying this, but we need to listen to Scripture. And when it tells us what the gospel is, which it does many times, not once does it use the phrase, God loves you. It talks about the risen Jesus. It talks about repentance, and it talks about faith. And it talks about new life. Here, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It's in verse 2. Using what we call the Old Testament. Luke doesn't tell us what verses Paul used. Possibly some of the Psalms. Psalms 2, 16 and 110 sort of contain some of the stuff about suffering and life. Maybe Isaiah 53, which is one of the servant songs. All of which prophesy the cross. More likely, Paul didn't rely on proof texts, but retold the whole story of God with his people. From slavery in Egypt and rescue through Moses, to David fleeing his son Absalom and then being restored, to the whole nation being taken into exile and then brought back, and the walls rebuilt by Nehemiah and others, and so much in between. The history of God with his people tells us that God brings restoration through suffering and life through death. That is why, verse 3, 
the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Because that is how God has chosen to work in this world. So, of course, his Messiah, his chosen one, his own son, the one who brings us life, of course he does that in the way God has always been at work in his people, through death and suffering to bring life and restoration. And that, my friends, is the gospel. And we cannot understand it without the Old Testament. Paul proved to them all of that without a single letter or dot or iota or whatever of the New Testament. Because he hadn't written it yet. (laughs) And some of the Jews, verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. They were convinced because of Paul's arguments. And in Berea, the same thing happened. In verse 11, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, verse 12, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Friends, the gospel, the actual gospel that we find in Scripture, it makes sense. It is logical and reasonable. It's consistent with all God has done throughout his history with his people. Only we would read and see how it fits together. Often what it says is hard, either to understand or to put into practice more often, but it is all true, and it is all used by God to speak to us by his Holy Spirit. And I'm going to do a little plug now for his story, which is a course that's starting at the end of September, which does exactly that. It looks at the whole of God's story with his people from Genesis to Revelation and tries to help us see how it fits together. That's the sort of thing Paul was doing. He did it in three days and we're doing it in eight weeks. I hope, I hope and I pray that we receive and examine God's word with the eagerness of those people in Berea. They receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day. I love verse 11 because it shows that Paul invited people to check for themselves. It wasn't just preaching something, you must believe what I say. He invited them to look, to search and examine the scriptures for themselves. That's why I encourage you to bring a Bible or use a church Bible and have it open whilst we're preaching at you. So you know that what we're saying isn't a load of rubbish. It's coming from this. So you can see what's happening around the passage that we're looking at of the day. Because the truth isn't in here. And it's not in our hearts. The truth is in scripture, which we listen to and are inspired through by the Holy Spirit. The most important thing in this building, it's not the walls or the ceiling, although they are useful when it rains. It's not the chairs, though they're possibly more comfortable than sitting on the floor or standing. It's not the tech, so I can show you maps. It's not the lighting, it's not the kitchen, don't tell Bobby. It's not the cupboards. It's not even the toilets, it's this. At her coronation... Wearing royal robes, wearing the crown with uh, the enormous diamonds in it, holding the crown jewels. The queen was handed a Bible with these words, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. I'm not sure I can think 
of a way of emphasizing that better than that picture. Surrounded by, I don't even, I mean, they are literally priceless, the crown jewels. And yet the most valuable thing is that book. Do we believe that? So far, so good then. Like in Philippi, Paul and Silas had shared the gospel and they got a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women and some Jews who'd come to faith. But then, like in Philippi, the tide started to turn. There, it was the, the Romans and the Greeks who opposed Paul because he was challenging their way of life. In Thessalonica, at this point, it was the Jews who started the opposition. Verse 5, some of them were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul. and That's the first mention of Jason, by the way. That's how I think we know they knew who he was. So you're like, who's Jason? They, sorry, Jace. We know who you are. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out before the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble over all the world have now come here. Jason's welcomed them into his house. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king called Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it, that in their jealousy, these Jews whip up a renter mob and then accuse Paul of causing a riot. These bad characters from the marketplace in chapter 5, these were men, I'm afraid men, they weren't women, they were men who didn't have anything to do. They had no work that day, so they would just sort of loiter with intent in the marketplace, either waiting for someone to come and give them some work or for some trouble or something interesting to happen that they could join in with. I suspect many of them didn't really know what was going on, but they were carried along by the mob. But their plan backfired. They didn't find Paul and Silas in Jason's house. They were out. I know they were down at Morrison's or something. So poor old Jason and some of the other believers, they were dragged out instead before the city officials. Now that probably saved their lives. They'd ended up before that baying mob. Who knows what would have happened to them. And they were charged with being troublemakers. And the NIV puts it like this. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. I think the King James puts it rather rather more poetically. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Like a bit of come hither. They turned the world upside down. Or rather, the right way up. They weren't deliberately trying to cause riots wherever they went. But the gospel, the truth about Jesus, turns the world the right way up. Paul and the apostles preached the gospel so powerfully that people were driven either to repent or to riot. Friends, the gospel, the gospel is offensive. Because it tells us that we are not the center of the universe. We are not in command of our destiny. The gospel is offensive because how can God be born as a baby and grow up and go to school and suffer and die? 
The gospel is offensive because it demands exclusivity. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus said that himself in John 14. The gospel is offensive because it tells us that we are in the wrong, and we like to be right. At least I do. Just ask Jess. It tells us we are wrong. We are full of pride and sin and that we need to repent and believe in order to live. That's why it's good news, because we can live. The gospel is offensive because it demands we put Jesus before anything and anyone else, including our deepest desires and including our own families. Jesus must come first. That is why the gospel is offensive. No wonder they rioted. Because this is a huge challenge to our way of life. And if we don't see that, we haven't heard the gospel. And if you haven't heard the gospel, that's my fault. And others, not just me. But friends, let's not kid ourselves that the gospel is like some sort of Disney film. It's hard and it's challenging. But that's why it's good news, because it isn't make-believe. It's real. Like yours, my life is not a bed of roses. It has ups, downs, joys, pains, love, hardship. But the gospel is that God meets me in all of those places and calls me in all those places to lose myself in Jesus so I can find who I truly am in him. The gospel is that there is something more, and his name is Jesus. The gospel message is wonderfully true. It is real, and it brings life. It is the power of God for salvation. It brings life, but it's also challenging, which is why proclaiming it brings suffering. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, In chapter 6, he lists many of his sufferings. And I suspect that mission agencies don't put that passage in their adverts for mission workers. Because the stuff that happened to Paul wasn't great. And yet, he stayed faithful. He was going from town to town. The same thing was happening time and again. He would preach the gospel. People would be saved. He would plant a church. And then the crowd would come and try and kill him. And he'd have to escape, often under cover of night. He preached the gospel of Jesus in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Corinth, in Ephesus. And that's just on this missionary journey. Wherever he went, he preached the gospel, no matter what the cost. Some did riot, but many responded in repentance and faith and found life and joy. I'm going to preview my sermon in two weeks with a verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When he had a bit of a breather in Corinth, so Paul is being chased across Greece by this baying mob, and uh, he ends up in Corinth. They actually have to send him away by boat to get him away off the road, and he ends up in Corinth, and uh, he's there for, for 18 months, a couple of years, 
And he had a bit of a breather. And we think that is where he wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. So a few months after being chased out of Thessalonica, he's in Corinth and he writes this letter to them. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It's one of these weird things in the New Testament that joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive. It's this crazy way that God works by his Spirit. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. It's more like the sort of peace and contentment. Joy is brought by the Spirit. It's a choice. We choose to rejoice. That's why at the beginning of the service we sang a song saying rejoice. Some of you may have thought, I don't want to rejoice in God right now. Well, tough, actually. We have to choose sometimes to find our joy in God. And as we say those words more and more, they become true. And we learn how to find joy even in the midst of severe suffering. I wish it weren't like that. I wish it were easier. (laughs) But friends, that is how the gospel works. And that is how God works. The Christians in Thessalonica faced significant challenges, but they were doing okay, actually. They turned away from their former way of life. They were growing in holiness, in step with the Lord. They were becoming known, as I said earlier, for their great love for one another. And so Paul tells them, what you are doing, do it more and more. Keep the faith. Live the life. Stay focused on Jesus. Keep growing in holiness and love with the Spirit's help. He puts it like this in a couple of verses. Live lives worthy of God. Live in order to please God. The word Paul uses there, it's not actually the word live, it's the word walk. Walk in order to please God. The Christian life is not a sprint, nor is it a marathon. Luckily for me, because I love walking, it is a long, steady walk into holiness. Eugene Peterson calls it a long walk in the same direction. And that's why I've called this series Walking Worthily. The gospel calls us to give up much, but it promises so much more. As we learn to live God's best life, the life God made, the life he calls us to live and to walk with him. So my prayer is that through this series, we will together examine the scriptures eagerly, just like they did in Berea, and that all of us would respond to the gospel in a new or a fresh or a deeper way than we ever have before. Let us focus on Jesus and learn to live that life with his spirit, walking worthily. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus knows the suffering that we face day by day. And we thank you that he rose again in victory over sin and shame and death. And we thank you that in him, we might have life. We thank you for Paul's faithfulness, the way he shared the gospel about Jesus despite the persecution he faced. 
And we thank you for the way the Thessalonians discovered the joy of the Spirit, even in great suffering. Send your Holy Spirit on us, we pray, and help us respond to Jesus. Examining the Scriptures eagerly, turning away from our old life, growing in holiness and love and hope, walking worthily with you and one another. Amen. Oh,